This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. You know, I don't normally interview rabbis as is if they're not founders of a particular organization or something that might have more unique appeal to a broad cross-section of our listenership. Nothing against rabbis. Some of my best friends are rabbis. In fact, I am one myself. But there are other amazing podcasts that do interview rabbis of all sorts, congregational, educational, and so forth. But here on Jews You Should Know, generally trying to find personalities whose appeal might be more universal in terms of their story or their professional activities. Well, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, I believe, is a rabbi who transcends the normal reservations and is worth featuring because I believe he will appeal to so many listeners regardless of where they are. First of all, his own history, personal biography, is expressive of a particular community, of course, of the great Lubavitcher Rebbe, and that alone offers a window into a world that many of us are not as familiar with. But then what he's done in his adult life, to me, is remarkable, in that he is one of the few rabbis who, as a public figure, a speaker, is able to traverse all sectors of certainly the observant community, and that alone is no small thing. I think people on the outside of the observant community look at it as a monolith, but it is far, far, far from that. We talk about Hasidim and non-Hasidim, within Hasidim, Lubavitch and Chabad and other sects, each distinct from the other. And Rabbi Jacobson is one of these figures who is a Chabad Hasid, but speaks to the hearts and the minds of people all across the community. And again, I would say the observant community, but actually, I believe, well beyond as well. And so, really was a tremendous honor to be able to have him on this program. Personally, I am a great admirer of Rabbi Jacobson's speeches and lectures, as is my wife and my family, and I just gained so much from him. My wife often comments that he is our generation's truth-sayer, that he's not beating around the bush, not politically correct, just for the sake of evading difficult topics, but he simply says it like it is from a place of deep compassion, empathy, and wisdom in a way that's sensitive and that is absorbable by and palatable to the listeners. Anyway, a reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, stream at JewsYouShouldKnow.com. Email JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com for any sponsorships. And now to our conversation with the great orator, inspiring leader, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. We are here with Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, a noted lecturer, author, and uh, Jewish personality writ large, and uh, really an honor to have you, Rabbi Jacobson. Welcome. How are you? Thank you so much. It's my honor and privilege to be here with you. Thank you for the invitation. You know, it's funny, uh, a little while ago, a couple hours ago, I was... uh, talking to my daughter. She just got home from school. I said, oh, I have an interview today with uh, with Rabbi Jacobson. She says, oh, that's the one that mommy listens to. <laughs> I said, I also listen. So they, I, I just need to be more vocal about my uh, my listening preferences. But uh, Rabbi Jacobson, a big a big uh, fan favorite in, in our house. She meant that mommy takes it in deeper. Uh, that's, that's right. She internalizes it. That's right. That I could definitely concur. Uh, so Rabbi Jacobson, take it from the top. Uh, let us know a little bit where you're from, where's your family from, and, and so forth. I was born in 1972 in Brooklyn, New York, <laughs> in a hospital called Lefferts General Hospital, which has since been transformed into a Jewish girls' campus. And uh, my family, both my parents, were born in Stalinist Russia in the, the 1930s which were excruciatingly painful years. 
for, of course, Soviet citizens, but especially for Jews, especially for observant Jews, the purges of Stalin's horrific regime were very intense, and they suffered a lot. My uh, grandfather was part of the underground network of preserving Yiddishkeit, preserving Judaism in the former Soviet Union. He was arrested during Stalin's purges of 1938. He was sentenced to death, and then it was commuted to 25 years in the Gulag. He was tortured. Ultimately, he was let free towards the end of the Second World War. So my father really suffered a lot as a child in Russia. My mother also was in communist Russia. They both escaped the Soviet Union on false passports after the Holocaust, after the Second World War. They arrived to Europe. And ultimately, some years later, they made their way to the United States of America, where they built a family. My father, all of his years, he died in 2005, but all of his years, he was a journalist. He was the UN correspondent for Israel's largest daily, which is called Yediyot Achronot. He was its UN correspondent. He worked for the Forward. He worked for the Herald Tribune. He worked for Newsweek. He worked for a Yiddish daily called the Day Morning Journal, which closed down in the early 70s. And then he opened up his own Yiddish weekly newspaper, the Algemeiner Journal. So we grew, up, we grew up in a very interesting home. It was extremely colorful, very diversified, very open in the sense of the types of guests and visitors and you know, conversations. My father was a very uh, universal type of a person. And uh, that's basically where my, uh, I mean, in, you know, in a few sentences. Were your grandparents Lubavitcher Hasidim? As always, there's a story behind that, right? So actually, my name is not Jacobson. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> We're breaking news on this podcast, yeah. Yali. <laughs> My name is Yakobashvili, Yakobashvili, which is Georgian for Jacob's son. Yakobashvili in Georgian, Shvili is son. That's why all the Georgians are called Shvili. So uh, my grandfather's name was Simon. Simon, classic Sephardic name, although you have it in Gemara, you have it in the Talmud and the Midrash. And he grew up in Kutais. Kutais is in Georgia which is South Russia. They came from a very affluent family that developed fur. And uh, my grandfather was actually in the 1918, he had a scholarship to go from Georgia to Italy to study the business of making fur so he can take over the family business back in Georgia. And on the way to Italy, he passed a city at the Dan River in Russia called Rostov. In Rostov, there was another figure who came to Rostov. He was escaping the Germans from the First World War, which broke out in 1914, of course, August 14. This was the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Sholem Ber Schneerson, known as the Rebbe Rashab, who was one of the seminal figures of Russian Jewry, one of its great leaders, very, very close with the legendary Talmudic sage, Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, Rabbi Chaim Brisker, they were very close, even though they came from somewhat different philosophical persuasions, the Hasidic world, the Litvish world, extremely close. And he escaped the German onslaught because he lived in Belarus, Lobavitch. It's a city of Belarus. And he escaped to Rostov. And my grandfather was an 18-year-old Georgian, tall, handsome, good-looking, strong Georgian teenager, as my father describes it, with yellow shoes and a white jacket and a red bow tie, walks in Rosh Hashanah in the morning in Rostov. He needs a shul. So he walks into the little headquarters of, of Chabad at the time in Rostov. And, uh, you know, he really seemed quite uh, strange, peculiar looking in the in the sea of Hasidim. I mean, there weren't so many people. This is Rostov in the middle of the Bolshevik Revolution and Civil War. So it was, you know, very, very difficult times. But something touched him, something touched him, and he went to see the Rebbe. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rashab, asked him what he's doing. They spoke, they spoke in Hebrew because he couldn't speak Yiddish. So they spoke in Hebrew, and he said he's going to Italy, you know, to become part of the, the fur business. His family has done it for generations, very successful in Georgia. And the Rebbe said to him, you know, he said these words, to Italy you will arrive when the right time comes. I think now it's important for you to learn Torah, 
to know what it really means to be a Jew. And I would take some time to stay in yeshiva and learn. And for some reason, he said it, he obeyed. He decided to do that. And he became a student of the yeshiva of the Rebbe. The Rebbe died two years later in 1920, who was succeeded by the sixth Chabad Rebbe, who now suffered terribly. Because what happened was most rabbis left Russia. You couldn't survive. It was just impossible. Even the Chafetz Chaim, he couldn't have a yeshiva there. They closed down everything. People don't realize what the communists did to Judaism. They weeded out every last vestige of Judaism. As historians like to say, what the Yefsekzia, which is the Jewish Communist Party, the section, the Jewish Communist Party, did in 10 years to Jews in Russia. You're talking about millions of Jews. The Enlightenment couldn't do in 200 years. In 10 years, until Stalin closed down the Yefsekzia in 1929. And the, the sixth Rebbe, his name was Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak. He passed away in 1950 in New York. He really took it upon his shoulders to preserve Russia. And he called in in 1924 when Lenin died and Stalin took over, which created the worst hell on earth for the next 30 years. Stalin killed close to 50 million people. That's more than Hitler. He killed more people than Hitler. The Rebbe gathered nine people, young people, and he said, Judaism in Russia will not be able to survive. I want to make an oath with you, we have a minion. I will be the 10th. Whoever agrees, we will make a commitment to preserve Yiddishkeit, Torah and mitzvahs and Jewish education in the Soviet Union till our last drop of blood. If you agree, give me a handshake. And the nine people all agreed. Incredible. And he gave each a handshake. He divided the map between them and each one of them was sent and was charged with the responsibility of creating an underground flourishing network of Yiddishkeit, which meant chedarim, day schools, underground, yeshivas, finding rabbis, shachtim, people to slaughter kosher meat, circumcisers, mayhalim, teachers for the children, prayer books, books for text, matzah for past, whatever a Jew needs to preserve Jewish life. And it, most of it had to be underground. Over the next few decades, he built, the Lubavitcher built, this is un, literally unknown history, even in the Chabad world, but in the whole world. He built 600 underground Jewish schools. Now imagine today in America building 600 schools. People can't even support one school. Underground schools. And my grandfather was one of those nine, one of those nine. And he was sent to Georgia. In Georgia, there were 60 mikvahs for women, 60 ritual paths. Stalin closed all of them down, all of them. And my grandfather had to go create some Yiddish. And the Jews in Georgia were not very knowledgeable, but very, very committed, filled with Georgian. They have a muna, a lot of a muna. You know, like Svaradik Jews generally have deep faith. And in Georgia, for hundreds of years, thousands, they were there from the end of the first temple. Thousands of years, there was strong tradition, even those who were not knowledgeable, mikveh, kosher, Shabbos, it was very strong. And you know what? They were safe over there for close to 2,000 years. And Hitler came 15 miles, but he didn't make it into Georgia. 15 miles or kilometers, but he didn't make it in. And he started to build Yiddishkeit. He forged documents from the KGB, and then he had to run away and run here and run there. Ultimately, they got to him in 1938 when he was arrested and tortured. He didn't think he'll make it out of the Soviet Union. He was sent to Siberia. He suffered a lot, but he had three children with my grandmother. For years, she did not know if he's alive. And they ultimately came out of the, of the Soviet Union. So that's basically uh, the connection of our family and Chabad. Incredible. Did they have a, those nine, was, it sounds like a, kind of like this band of brothers. Sort of, did, they, did they maintain a connection throughout most of them didn't survive. Most of them were shot. Most of them didn't survive. Very few survived. We don't even know most of the names because it was top secret. Because what the Russians did was when they caught somebody, they tortured you to inform. And I'm not going to describe here the methods of torture, what they did to my grandfather and to many other people. But those who know Russian history of the Stalin's purges know about the torture. And they would torture you so badly that even if it wasn't true, you had to inform on people. 
which is how Stalin managed to destroy the fabric of Russian people because children informed on their parents, siblings informed on brothers and sisters, parents informed on their parents. You know, the basic fabric of civilization is family. When you destroy family, when I can't trust my son and my son can't trust me, society crumbles. And that's what they did. That's what he did in the Soviet Union. So it was so difficult. So everything had to be maintained. The confidentiality and the secrecy had to be top, top level. So there was almost zero communication and everything with code language. The one man who had it all in his mind was the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This is the sixth Rebbe, the father-in-law of the most recent Lubavitcher Rebbe. And till he was arrested in 27, they arrested him. They sentenced him to death. And then they commuted it to exile for 10 years. But ultimately, he was liberated in 27. And he was forced to leave to leave the Soviet Union. It was an incredible, incredible, tragic era of Jewish history. And, you know, I, I lecture a lot around the world, just parenthetically. People often ask me about, you know, miracles today. And I say to people, you want to see one of the greatest miracles of Jewish history? You go back to Russia today. Anybody who knows anything about Russia, for 70 years, all Yiddishkeit had to be underground. This is not only the Second World War, the six years of the Second World War. You're talking about for 70 years, from 1917. For the next 70 years, all Judaism was literally, it seemed, dead. And then suddenly... The Iron Curtain came down and the renaissance of Yiddishkeit in the former Soviet Union is something that is completely beyond rational explanations. I went back to Russia a few times. There are, just Chabad built 104 Jewish day schools with hundreds of thousands of graduates. On Lagba Omer, thousands of Jewish kids parading in Moscow. On Hanukkah, a menorah in the Kremlin, a few yards from where Lenin and Stalin's mausoleums are. And I want to say they must be turning over in their grave. They just don't have a grave. Lighting a menorah. I asked uh, Rabbi Katlarsi from Chabad, I asked him, how many shluchim are there in the Soviet Union? He said 400 families building. And, and then there's other, there's other shuls and other organizations. So it's, it's really, as somebody who came from that background, and this was so much part of my parents' life, it's really one of the greatest miracles in, in Jewish history, in my opinion. So, you know, you had this incredible story of, of your family being this central part of, of the Chabad community. I imagine that must have had an impact on your own childhood, and, and I know that you had, you know, proximity to the most recent Lubavitcher Rebbe. What was your own childhood like, and what was that connection and that relationship like as you were growing up? So the culture and the history and the sacrifices of my parents and my grandparents in Russia were certainly very much part of our education and upbringing, especially that most of the elders in my community were either Holocaust survivors or Stalin survivors, which means they lived through decades of, of Soviet oppression, which was horrific. So, you know, we grew up, you know, teachers, educators, mentors, rabbis, the older people in shul and the community were, came from that generation, like many others, you know, who grew up with survivors of different, whether it was Auschwitz survivors or Stalin survivors, each one with their own unique, you know, extraordinary story of, of triumph and resilience and faith and, and so much pain and tragedy. So it certainly left, a, you know, a very deep impact on me. But I grew up in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, I have to say. My childhood was relatively tranquil, uh, you know, certainly in terms of, of like, you know, us American spoiled brats <laughs> who uh, can have pizza and falafel and babka and cheesecake and chocolate cake whenever we wanted. And uh, in that sense, you know, our generation was blessed in so many ways. My parents, my father was a very idealistic person. He was a journalist, so he didn't have, he had an interesting career. And remember, this is before the internet and before computers. So journalism was everything. The newspaper was your one source of news and information. It wasn't like today, everyone makes the news, right? And you just send out a tweet and you can already become, you know, a celebrity overnight. 
But uh, then it was the newspaper. And my father was a very serious newspaper man. And he was always traveling the world. Uh, he traveled to Egypt right after the Six-Day War to cover the side of the losers. It was interesting. Everybody was talking about Israel. He went to Egypt to see what it's like in Egypt as a Jew. It was not so simple. He, was almost, he almost ended up in prison there. But he was an interesting, an interesting figure. So we, we certainly grew up with a lot of uh, diversity, a lot of colorfulness, but he was a real fighter for truth and justice. He was a man of conviction. My mother as well. My father passed away. My mother, may she be healthy, is really a very uh, idealistic, idealistic personality. At a young age, I was taken into a, a very interesting team, which I guess molded me quite significantly. And that was the Lubavitcher Rebbe of Blessed Memory, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who passed away in 1994. He, of course, lived in Brooklyn. He was also a survivor of, uh, of Stalin and, and then of Hitler's occupation of France. And he, you know, he was, uh, besides being a leader, he was also an exceptional teacher and a quite a brilliant scholar of uh, titanic proportions. And every Shabbos, or almost every Shabbos, he would speak for hours. And Yom Tov, Shabbos and holidays, no recording devices, no, no tape recorders, nothing could be recorded. So there was a team of oral scribes who were charged with memorizing all of the shiurim, all the classes and lectures and presentations by the Lubavitcher Rebbe to transcribe them for posterity. At a young age, my brother who was involved in this team, he, uh, I guess he felt that I had some qualification. So... There went my Shabbos tranquility, my Shabbos nap, my Shabbos cholent, my Shabbos kishka, my Saturday night outings with friends, pizza, bowling, or other good things that yeshiva boys in Brooklyn did those days. Today, if your son is going bowling, you're happy. But then some people called, you know, bowling was a little fishy. And it really changed, the, I would say it changed the trajectory of my life because the responsibility was immense. It was difficult but it was also electrifying because the Lubavitcher Rebbe's teachings had a breadth and a depth to them that was incredibly moving for, for, for me. Uh, when he would speak, you know, the quotations from all of the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, biblical commentary, Rishonim, Achroinim, Maimonides, every Rashi, Toysavis, he knew by heart, Kabbalah, mysticism, psychology, Hasidic spirituality, current events, Machshava, Hashkafa, Musa, it was just a, a breath. It was such an expansive vision of Judaism, both in breath and depth. It really touched me very, very deeply. And I did that during my teen years. This is what I was involved in until the Rebbe fell ill in 1992, and then he passed two years later. So uh, I guess in many ways I was molded by uh, that type of... Uh, you know, proximity, that type of relationship and that type of involvement. I mean, all day I would sit in yeshiva and I tried to learn, but this was, so to speak, an extracurricular activity. How many people would do one, like, was it a team? He would, he would speak for hours, right? He could speak for five, six hours sometimes, right? Sometimes nine hours. So how would you remember, who would remember each? Did you divide it up by like an hour each you took or? <laughs> no, 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 nothing was divided. Not only that. If there was a holiday, let's say Simchas Torah, there could be four different Fabrengans, which means altogether it could be 12 hours. And he was not an entertainer, meaning he didn't sit down and tell a few jokes and tell a few stories. Each talk was loaded. It was loaded. It would, it would be a lecture on Rambam. It was like a Rosh Hashim giving a share on Rambam. Then would be a finish a Gemara, tracked it in Gemara. Then you finish Shas. Then would be a Maimon Hasidus. Then he would analyze a Rashi. Then, well, then speak about education, speak about emotional health. It was very, and then the Parsha, the holiday. Then there was a Sugi and Gemara. Then he would talk about the Sugi and Karbon. It was just very, very intense. And it was Nigla and Nister, which means there was a lot of halachic discussion. And then there was a lot of what we call Jewish mysticism and spirituality, like the soul of Torah. So what happened was it was a team of approximately five, six people. It was led by a genius who's still alive. He's in his 90s. His name is Rabbi Yoel Khan. And really, everybody had to remember everything. And after Shabbos, they would meet and he would start reviewing and the arguments would continue for the next few hours. Notes were taken. I hope they brought in pizza, at least for you guys. Something. You know? <laughs> Ooh, pizza was pizza. <laughs> no, no pizza. A coffee. You can get a coffee. 
it was every Saturday night, every Yom Tif, and then oh, throughout the week, it was written up by a team of, of good writers and editors. And yeah, you know, I'm very grateful for that privilege because I think, you know, a lot of the material was just very deeply inspiring, educational on, on, on so many, so many different uh, levels because he combined, I found that his scholarship combined three components. One is what you would call brisk, which is the yeshivish analytical style. The other one was called the, the path of the Rekachover, which like encompassed the whole Torah. And then there was the mystical, spiritual, psychological hashkafa part of the Maharal and Kabbalah and Chassidus and Musa So that combination was just very, uh, it was just very powerful. Did he review the, the transcripts or whatever that you wrote over? So for many years, he did not. He just asked that we put on the cover page that it was not edited by him and it's on the responsibility of the writers so that people should realize there's room for error and make mistakes. Remember, you couldn't remember everything. It was impossible. But we wanted that. However, as years progressed and he got a lot of requests, he would usually, the Rebbe would take one of the talks of Shabbos and edit it. And that he would edit, he would add things, he would take off things. He was a very, very rigorous editor and a very tough editor, meaning he did not like when there were mistakes and errors, especially sloppy errors or even thematic errors. If you forgot a Gemara or a Rambam, was, <laughs> the Rebbe was not happy. He demanded excellence, the excellence, even though he tolerated, you know, he tolerated imperfections, but he just wanted people should challenge themselves very heavily, which was general a motto of his. And uh, as a result, what happened was he started to edit a lot of talks. So a lot of them he ended up editing, not most, but many. Now, did this experience afford you more of a, a personal connection with him? Because certainly the years you're talking about, he was already so well known and reputed and to get into him was like incredibly difficult. No, no, there were thousands and thousands of people coming. Uh, Shabbos or Yom Tov, there could be 10,000 people there. So the mail, I mean, I saw the mail would come. It was maybe six, seven hundred letters a day. It was, it was just very, uh, it was so packed. And he was also getting older. I would say it afforded me a closer relationship academically, not personally in the sense I was, you know, I was one of the boy yeshiva boys there. But academically, we would give in the transcripts to the Rebbe and he would edit them and remark and ask questions. And so I saw a lot of his style and his writing style and his edits and, you know, and sometimes we would ask him questions. So that was, that was the, it was a relationship through learning, through Torah, so to speak. And uh, it, that itself was exceptional because uh, to see the Rebbe's approach and style to learning and his mastery of Torah and the all-encompassing breadth of knowledge and the penetrating keen insights, it was literally transfixing and, and electrifying. So now, did, you know, very common path, of course, among uh, promising young Chabad men and, and, and women as well, obviously, is uh, to go out and to make that difference around the world, just like uh, your grandfather was shipped off to, to Georgia and, and with his colleagues of his, of the same, uh, doing the same thing. Was that something that you entertained doing early on? Did the Rebbe ever turn to you and say, okay, I don't know, do you call you YY? <laughs> what did he call you? But, you know, time to go out. You're, you're heading off to uh, Azerbaijan or uh, something like that. The truth is, in all frankness, I did not know what I will be doing, and I did not imagine that I would be doing what I'm doing today. I was a yeshiva boy. When the Rebbe passed away, I was, was before my marriage. I was an older yeshiva boy, so I was still just learning. I would learn basically all day and sometimes part of the night. So I really was not thinking about the future and a destiny. I didn't have all these calculations. I was more like I didn't plan it. I wasn't one of those people that at 12, you know, I knew exactly what I'll be doing for the rest of my life. It's not my style. It's not my disposition. It's not my instinct. I was really learning. I was immersed pretty much in learning and in writing and then, you know, in the, a lot of the Rebbe's teachings, which to be immersed in the Rebbe's teaching required endless rigorous learning, especially of Gemara and Halacha and Rishonim and Acharonim, besides spiritual works. So that was really what I was involved in. After the Rebbe's passing, I was already an older yeshiva boy. And what happened was, what really happened was, it was, it was really completely unexpected. My father asked me to write a weekly column in his newspaper 
on the parsha in Yiddish. I, I can write Yiddish. So I did. And then a rabbi exactly in Highland Park, Chicago, called me up. He would get my father's newspaper. And he said, I love your columns. Could you come to our community for a Shabbos? I said, me? What am I going to do in your community for a Shabbos? He said, you'll share some words of Torah. I said, I never did this before. Come, you'll be good. He paid my ticket, $200. He paid my ticket. I got on a plane. I went there for Shabbos. And I saw he made a whole Shabbat So I got up. I still remember it was Parshas Miketz. And I remember I gave a sermon, a talk I heard, a very deep analytical talk, but very powerful, about why Pharaoh was so mesmerized by Joseph's interpretation. What's the big deal? Pharaoh dreamt fat cows, so Joseph said there'll be a lot of food. Skinny cows, no food. Okay, it's nice. Why was Pharaoh blown, blown away? I remember that was the talk. And it was based on a presentation that the Rebbe once delivered with a beautiful psychological insight that I thought was good for this more secular uh, or modern community. And uh, they loved it. <laughs> they loved it. And when we finished, he said, will you come back again? I said, well, it, it was very inspiring for me too. And you know what? The next Shabbos, I got a call from a rabbi in Great Neck. <laughs> Once the word is out, that's it. <laughs> and as they say, you know, the rest is history. And over the last few decades, I had the privilege of traveling the world I think hundreds and hundreds of communities speaking to Jews and non-Jews, reform, conservative, orthodox, Litvish, yeshivish, Hasidic, modern, right-wingers, left-wingers, campuses, universities, JCCs, and sometimes non-Jewish audiences. And it's been a very, uh, a very exhilarating experience. I'll share maybe an interesting story that you may find, your listeners may find interesting. When I was a young boy, maybe... Uh, I was 11, I think, maybe 10 or 11. I was standing Shabbos afternoon at one of those gatherings, which we called Fabrengens in Yiddish, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he spoke for hours. Now, you'll forgive me, a 10-year-old standing for hours is ADD. Even if you're not ADD, you become ADD, right? <laughs> yeah, people ask me, why are so many kids ADD? I said, well, even if you're not, in certain situations, you become ADD. I sometimes am sitting at lectures. I become ADD right there. So... Uh, I was counting the beams, and I was I was not involved. The Rebbe was talking. I remember a deep Rashi was complicated, and Vayikri was analyzing a Rashi with a bunch of questions. And suddenly, I see somebody pointing at me, and it was the Rebbe. He interrupted his talk, and he was pointing at me. And this he would he would not do this. It was it was a huge of five thousand people. He was speaking to the people. What did I do? Like what is this? He's going to start testing me. And out of the blue, he asked me a question in Yiddish. He said, from to How do you know that the universe exists? I was a little boy. How I know the world is? I didn't know what to say. But 5,000 eyes are looking at me. And I blushed. And I was waiting for the Rebbe to move on. And I'm thinking, live and let live. I'm not disturbing you. Why are you disturbing me? But he waited for an answer. When the answer didn't come, he smiled. And he said, he'll give the answer for me. And the Rebbe said, this child says, you know how I know the universe exists? Not from the newspapers, not from the streets, not from politics, and not from traveling the world. You, how does he know the world exists? Because the opening verse of the Torah says, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. That's how he knows the universe exists. And then he went on to the discussion. And for years, I wondered, what, what was that about? I, don't, I still don't know. But... Over the last few decades, you know, I tell myself that perhaps in some mystical, spiritual way, the Rebbe was telling me, you're going to travel the world. You'll meet a lot, a lot of people. You'll meet interesting people. You may be faced sometimes with difficult questions or situations. Remember, your knowledge of the universe and your approach to the universe and the way you deal with every aspect in your life and in the world and with people you meet always has to be based on the opening verse of all of Torah, it's a divine world, it's a meaningful world, it's a place of unity, of purpose. We were conceived in love, and each one of us is part of an infinite mosaic and constitutes an indispensable note in the divine cosmic symphony. So 
I felt like that was like some form of maybe subconscious marching orders. So today, wherever I go, I try in one way or another to communicate to myself and to the audiences that we live in a world of hope. We live in a world that is, that is godly. We live in a world where each of us is charged with a divine mission and each of us has the resources to turn the world into an amazing place despite, despite the challenges and despite the pain and despite the chaos and despite all of the adversity that each of us faces psychologically, economically, and practically and socially. So what's interesting is that you never ended up choosing a particular location. You said, you know, your mission's going to be all locations, basically, the wandering the heaven and the earth. I did not apply to go to Mars, but uh, who knows? That's right. That's what they say. That's what they say. The joke is when we will find life on Mars, we'll know from the Chabad house over there. Reverend Sachs used to say, is when we get to Mars, the Chabad will want to know if we put on tefillin already. <laughs> That's, <laughs> you can't escape. <laughs> Where did you learn to become uh, such a polished and, and passionate speaker? You know, was it there from that first Shabbos in Highland Park, Chicago? Were you the kind of guy who got up in the, uh, you know, gave the Devar Torah at the lunch on, you know, in Yeshiva on Shabbos afternoon? Like, where did that come from? Did you have mentors? My career began as a five-year-old boy. <laughs> I was studying in a Yeshiva, you know, a Jewish day school, Jewish cheder called Ahalei Torah in Brooklyn. And they had a dinner. And the principal or the teacher called me and he asked me if I could speak at the dinner. He wants me to say over a Rashi at the dinner. And I said, yeah. And I spoke at the dinner literally as a five-year-old. And the feedback apparently, I don't remember this, but my mother tells me that the feedback was uh, very, very positive. It made more money than usual. <laughs> and, uh, and I guess I had some, some uh, touch. There was uh, you know, some niche over there. And, you know, so in yeshiva, I would speak a lot. I, you know, I would give, uh, but I, I never saw it as a career. It was just something I did. And then later years, I would review the talks of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So, you know, I spoke in yeshiva. I would sometimes, you know, the Bachrim would sometimes give shiurim, pulpulim, whatever it is. So I would do that. But really as a, uh, you know, as a full-time vocation, I never saw that coming. And I can't say that I had a specific mentor who taught me how to communicate but I always tried to learn from the best. And I really grew up in a home where we had access to a lot of personalities, you know, both in terms of literature, in terms of books, in terms of people who visited. So, you know, I tried to learn. I, I tried to pick up and learn from people, mentors, teachers, people who, you know, taught me or at least helped me learn how to articulate ideas. But I would say much of it was just from within just, you know, who I am and how I operate. And, you know, God gives every person vices and virtues and, and, and you know, skills and, and deficiencies. And I'm one of those 7.7 .7 billion people who have my strengths and have uh, some weaknesses to counterbalance my strength, which you could discuss with my mother-in-law <laughs> when you do a podcast with her. Uh, you make the connection. We'll, we'll do it. <laughs> so, you know, what, what's fascinating is I, I mentioned earlier that my wife listens to your speeches all the time, and as do I. And I think there's a few unique and, and very salient features of your, of your presentations that I think distinguish them from maybe the generic uh, speakers out there. One of those is you know, my wife, again, the quoter, she, she always says, they say, Rabbi, Rabbi Jacobson is like our generation's truth sayer. They kind of just say it like it is, that you're not afraid, you don't back down from you know, difficult, controversial, sensitive issues. And you confront things in a real way. And I think in a way that a lot of other speakers maybe would prefer to sugarcoat or sidestep. Is that something that you do? I imagine you do intentionally. Is that something that just emerged? Is that something that you said, you know, I see that I have a, an ability not just to inspire people, but to really confront some of the most significant issues of our, of our day in a way that can be heard. And maybe it's not always popular, but is necessary. Where does that come from? Great question. Great question. Everything has a little story, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're Jews. We tell stories. We tell stories. Our first Passover when we were born, Pesach, we say mitzvah l'saper. The mitzvah is to tell the story. 
That's what we're good at. Pass on the story to your children. So here's a little story my father told me. My father said to me, he said, I was a journalist and I once asked the Lubavitcher Rebbe, why do you have to speak up about a particular topic in Israel? It's creating enemies for you. These are all people who would support you, but you, why do you speak up about this? So my father told me that the Rebbe told him an insight that literally moves me till today. He said that it says in Parsha Shmos, the beginning of Exodus, Moses came out to his brothers. This is a young prince from Pharaoh's palace. And he sees an Egyptian beating a Jew to death. He looks here, he looks there. He sees there's no man, nobody there. So he kills the Egyptian, he buries him, and he saves the Jew from death. And the commentators struggle. What does it mean there was nobody there? The next day, we see there was an informer who knew the whole story. So there's different interpretations, Rashi and others. But the Rebbe told my father, here is one interpretation. He looked here, and he looked there. He saw there was no man who will stand up to such a horrific crime. And at that moment, he had to make a decision. Will I join the masses and say, what do I have to get into trouble? What do I have to speak up? Let me just follow the herd. He could have done that. But when he saw a Jew being beaten to death, all calculations went out the window. He said, my job is to save this person. And he says, that's our profile of the first and timeless Jewish leader. It's something we all in our own lives must emulate. My father shared this with me. It left such a powerful and deep impression on me. And I would just like to add something interesting, interesting, that I shared at a lecture once. Moshe was not his real name. Moses is an Egyptian name. His parents gave him a different name, really. Moshe was an Egyptian name that his, was given to him by the daughter of Pharaoh. And that's the only name most Jews know. Most Jews don't know his real name. Yukusiel, Tov, Avigdor. If you learn Medrash, you know this. If you learn Talmud Saita. This is all the name of an Egyptian princess. The daughter of Pharaoh gives him the name. And that's the name that becomes the immortal name of Moses of Moshe. And perhaps, you know, as I once told an audience, imagine, imagine. A Jew, a Jew, who is growing up in the home of Adolf Hitler, sees an SS beating a Jew to death. He has a choice. He can kill the SS man and save this Jew for maybe a few weeks or a few months. Or he could be quiet, nurture his relationship with the Fuhrer. And one day he could take over and save millions of Jews. Moses, what are you doing? You're in the palace. You're going to be an ear of Pharaoh. Wait a couple of years. You'll take over. Moses, you're not being logical. Think this through. What are you, what are you saving this Jew? Let this Jew die. And one day, perhaps, you'll be able to save hundreds of thousands of Jews. You're an Egyptian. You're in the palace. He didn't do that. You know why? He could not watch a Jew die right now. All the calculations could not override the decision. This is an innocent man who's being murdered right now. And you know what happened? He had to become a fugitive. He lost everything. From our perspective, it was a foolish act. From God's perspective, it turned him into Moses. And I find that this is true with each and every one of us in our own limited way. When I or you or anybody sees injustice, lies, falsehood that are hurting people. It's very easy to say, you know, just be quiet. You know, it's the system. Let things work out. But I find that if God gave me a voice and God gave me an audience and God gave me opportunity, it's my duty in life to be able to be an ambassador to the best of my ability for truthfulness and for wisdom and for authenticity. But the truth is, the truth is, I have to say, when I started to grow up a little bit, I'm not finished, but when I started to grow up a little bit and I started to travel, I started to hear so many individual stories from people, whether it's about molestation, abuse, corruption, 
or various forms of injustice that they experienced. And I saw that nobody stands, there's not enough, there's not a voice that stands up for these people and calls out stupidity when it exists. And this is not about judging people. We're all human, we make mistakes. Nobody is there to point the finger and say, this is wrong, this is unfair, this does not make sense, this is not Judaism. And what happened was, I started to realize that these messages that I was communicating, and I may sound dramatic, and I know it sounds dramatic, but it's it's the real, real truth without drama, without exaggeration. I saw that this literally resurrected spiritual corpses. It infused a new vitality and hope in thousands of people who felt neglected, dejected, disappointed. They succumbed to cynicism, depression, indifference, apathy. They were full of pain, anger, resentment. And I saw that having a so-called rabbi or somebody who was, you know, representing, trying to teach Torah, speak these words that they felt were real, it literally gave them a new lease on life. Until today, until today, and I really don't have to do anything else, I receive, and again, I am not dramatizing here. I wish I was, but I'm not. I receive every single week approximately 1,000 emails, not 100 emails, 1,000. It's around 200 emails a day, so it's really more than 1,000. And many of them are stories of people from around the world, boys and girls, young and old, from all backgrounds, literally all backgrounds, from Satma to Chabad, from Babav to Ger, from Tzans to Litvish, from Unorthodox, from left-wing, right-wing, pro-Zionist, anti-Zionist, from Manchester to Australia, to New York, to California, Miami, Jerusalem, B'nai Brak, Sefer. Of all types of just experiences, questions, dilemmas, struggles. And when I read this, I'm like, people don't know what a lot of people are going through. And then I say, why me? I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm not a magician. I'm not a Rebbe or a Tzaddik. I am not a miracle worker. <laughs> okay. And then I say, yes, this is, everyone has a mission that Hashem gives them. This is part of your mission, Rabbi Waiwai, to speak up, to help these people, to inspire them, and to infuse them with vitality and to realize they should realize not to confuse Jews with Judaism. It's sad. I would love if we could confuse Jews with Judaism, but people have to know we can't always. There's Judaism, and then there's how people live it or don't live it. In starting to wrap up, along the lines, you said the, the, the breadth of people that respond to you and that you speak to to begin with really is my second observation, I guess, about What's so unique about your personality as this public speaker and individual within the, in the broader Jewish world? And that is that the reality is, unfortunately, that there are fissures, there are divides. And one of the real fault lines in the observant community is between Chabad community and other aspects of the Torah, Orthodox world, whatever you want to call it, whatever label we'll, we'll use, none of them are great. But somehow... For my, in my opinion, probably the only one that really has bridged that. There are others in, in different ways, but in a really comprehensive way has totally transcended those divides. How have you been able to do that? And, and is that something that was very conscious? What's that about in, in your life? Very good question. So the truth is, I have to say that it was not completely conscious. In other words, I saw that happening but I didn't always intend it to happen. But I'll tell you what I think, just a few swift points that come into my mind. You, know, you didn't tell me the questions before, so I didn't premeditate on any of these questions. That's the, that's the point. <laughs> what I find today is, and I'm gonna be blunt with you, when I was growing up as a kid, if you were a rabbi and you got up in a particular community and you spoke out against another community, whoever that community is, you can actually gain popularity from it. It was like, oh, he's a zealot, he's macho, he has conviction. Today, I find in the Jewish world in recent years, the exact opposite. If I get up in my shul or my community and I speak out against another community, people actually are nauseated. 
we have reached a point in Jewish history, which I find to be a blessing, where we realize that with all of our differences, what unites us is so much deeper than what divides us. And anti-Semitism is not directed towards Breslov, Chabad, Bells, Litvish, modern, this one or that one. And as I say, if you were Jewish enough for Joseph Mengele with his thumb to send you to the gas chambers, you are Jewish enough for me to love you, for me to create space for you. I found that the Jewish world in recent years is disgusted with divisiveness and fragmentation. It's an inheritance that is still embraced by very, very few people who are miserable. They're depressed. The majority of the Jewish world don't want tunnel vision Judaism. They want to see the full rainbow of Klal Yisrael. And that's what I try to do. Try to make sure that I can quote from all sources. Share with people the richness, the majesty, the infinity of Torah. Torah is so big. Why reduce it to one, only one perspective or one path? I told a story not long about the Panovichirov, the great Rav Yosef Shleim Mekahanman, Zechet Tzadik Levracha. And he was, of course, a Lithuanian rabbi from Panovich, Lithuania. He lost his wife and children. He himself came to Eretz He remarried. He built up so many beautiful institutions at B'nai Brak. And he was an exceptional figure. And one of his relatives told me, he said he once came to a Hanukkah Sabayas. They were dedicating a new yeshiva in Vizhnitz. And he was a real Litvak, as they say. He was a real, he was not a chosid. He gets up, it was after the Holocaust, and he says, he was very warm, charismatic. He says, ah, I have to say it again. He says, ah, today I would love to be a Vizhnitzer, chosid. The next week there was a Gerer institution. So he says, today I'm a Gerer chosid. I don't know if we should confuse it, Lahavdil, with the, you know, in Berliner. But the point, the point being, of course, is that he understood after a Holocaust, celebrate the growth of every community, celebrate the growth of every institution. It's, it's your family. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. In Auschwitz, you were all seen as the same enemy of mankind, as vermin. So now that we were liberated and we get to rebuild, we're going to allow fragmentation to divide us. And I feel that that's a message that the Jewish world today is yearning for. They're craving for it because it's really who we are. Fighting in a family is dysfunctional. I don't have to agree with everything my brother says. I don't have to agree with everything my sister says, but he's my brother for heaven's sake. You don't stop talking to your brother. You don't stop trusting your brother and you have to make sure your brother can trust you. So I say, we don't have to agree about everything but we have to be able to trust each other. We have to be able to be here for each other. We have to be able to, lo to love each other. And we have to remember that in our core, we're, we're, we are really one because the soul of every Jew is a chelik, it's a piece of Hashem. When you make divisions between Jews, it's like making divisions between gods. You know, you say one God, what do I mean? God is one, there is oneness. So I think in the ultimate vision of Judaism, we can disagree, there can be different opinions, different perspectives, people emphasize different things. And there can even be some things where there are serious disagreements, it's not the end of the world, so what? So what? But the trust must be there and hatred. Hatred and divisiveness, I find, must be completely eliminated. And you know, I also find when you respect people, they respect you. I try, I go to different audiences, show respect, show respect to the people, show respect to their sages, to their leaders, show respect to their culture. It may not be my culture, so what? But it's their culture, show respect. Number two, listen, don't only speak, listen, listen to people. Learn about their world, learn about what, what's meaningful to them. Because then when you communicate, it's so much more powerful. So don't just speak, listen, always listen. And number three, appreciate where people come from. Learn about their background, see their challenges, understand their journeys so that you can have a much more mature picture. And I think when we learn to do this, 
We just become ambassadors of love and unity. And that's what I try to do. Beautiful. And it's great to know that you're not getting the pushback and being accused of being a turncoat or, or things like that, but rather it sounds like you're saying people are actually craving this. I sometimes get negative feedback. There are people, you know, sometimes people live in very, very tribal and very parochial, frankly, and sometimes very petty. You said this about him and, uh, you know, and, you know, I look at them and I genuinely, I try to feel compassion. I'm like, you, you really are so insecure, you know, that you feel that pettiness is the only way to go. If you, if you would be larger, but I have to say that this is a very, very small minority, and it's usually people who are not happy with themselves. You know, when I don't like myself, I need scapegoats. I need people to blame. I need to project my misery. I need to be the zealot. I also need an identity. <laughs> Some people, they have confidence and identity by, by who they hate. I told somebody once, we were having an open conversation. I said, you know, instead of you being known, about all the people you don't like, why don't we start knowing you about all the people you love? There was a beautiful vart. Somebody told to me last week from Reb David Feinstein, Zatzal, who just passed away, Reb Moshe Feinstein, Zatzal's son. If I'm not mistaken, I heard it years ago in the name of yet somebody from a previous generation, but somebody said it last week in the name of Reb David Feinstein. He said, Reb David said, and I think he modeled this in his life for those who knew him, it says about Pinchas, who was the ultimate zealot in Torah, he took a spear in his hand. He fetched a spear and he stabbed Zimri and Cosby. And he said, why does the Torah have to say he took it with his hands? Of course, well, he took it with his feet. He took it with his teeth. Yeah, you take it with your hands. And he said, I'll tell you why. Some people, when they wake up in the morning and they go out of the house, they go out with a spear. The question is, who am I going to use it against? I'll find somebody in Shul here. There, they have a spear waiting. It's in the hand. It's always in the hand. The question is, who are we directing it towards? He says, Pinchas was not that person. He was a lover. But there was a moment that called for it. The Torah says, he took it in his hand right now. He wasn't carrying it all the time. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love it. That's fantastic. That's great. Rabbi Jacobson, and just in closing, what? are you actually doing today? I know you, you have a, a sort of a shul that you're a part of that you lead. Uh, you have a, a tremendous online presence called theyeshiva.net. Just tell, tell the audience what you're actually doing besides obviously traveling the world when it's not COVID or going on Zoom, I guess when it is, speaking all over, but you, you have projects and institutions that you directly are, are managing. Tell us about those. Well, I live here in Muncie and uh, we have a beautiful big shul called Archaim that has approximately 5,000 worshipers a day. 5,000 people a day. And great soup. <laughs> soup, a minion every few seconds or every few minutes. Koilalim by night, by day. It's really a beautiful place of, of achdus and unity. And I'm privileged to be one of the rabbis, teachers, with a lot of classes, lectures on Shabbos and during the week. We have a lot of local, local shiurim for men and women, especially pre-corona. Now, obviously, things changed. I do a lot of things online on, as you said, on theyeshiva.net, where there's a lot, a lot of shiurim online. Today, especially, hundreds of Zoom sessions, classes, Jews around the world. Tonight, there's a Zoom with the Palm Beach community called Jews and Thanksgiving. Rabbi Shiner. Shiner, yeah, or Palm Beach Orthodox Synagogue. And uh, but so really, that's a lot. Um, there's a lot of uh, private counseling and you know conversations with people. As I said, hundreds of emails a day. So that keeps me busy. I have my own my own learning and my own family that I also try to uh, to maintain to the best of my ability with God's grace. And there's a lot of writing I do as well. Those who receive, you know, I send out weekly essays, weekly articles. So. Uh, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm involved in. I find as a mission statement, as a personal, personal mission statement, is to help everybody, including myself, everybody I come in contact with, to realize that they are divine ambassadors to this world, ambassadors of hope, light, love, healing, authenticity, wisdom, and redemption. 
And if I'm doing something that's not somehow affecting that, I ask myself, wait, maybe this is not for you. Why, why, Jacobson? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My privilege and my honor. And may you continue to go from strength to strength in your holy work. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.